Uh, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and we're pleased to have as our guest today Dr. Thomas Harris. Dr. Harris is the Orrin Henry Ingram Distinguished Professor of Engineering at Vanderbilt University. He's also a professor of biomedical engineering, medicine and chemical engineering, and chair of the biomedical engineering department. Uh, Dr. Harris is well recognized for his uh, work in pulmonary studies, but he also has another important hat that he wears, and that is looking at researching and changing the means and methods of engineering education. And it's this subject that will be the discussion uh, today. Perhaps we can have Dr. Harris back on another occasion to talk about his other scientific interests. Welcome, Dr. Harris. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about your uh, studies in terms of uh, how is the optimal way to teach uh, engineers and what are your desired outcomes? Well, we uh, undertook this study under the sponsorship of the National Science Foundation through an engineering research center mechanism, a really very nice mechanism that uh, NSF has for uh, uh, engineering research and scientific research uh, generally aimed at a particular niche technology. And the uh, rationale behind an ERC is that one would have basic research enabling technologies and then attempt to influence a system of some kind. So this could be electronics, it could be biologically related, uh, any number of things that investigators devise and submit to NSF for approval. Uh, these are, are long grants, uh, usually eight to ten years. In our case, it was eight years. And uh, in 1998, uh, NSF decided that that they would like to do some work in engineering education. It was the first time in, in bioengineering bio education, uh, the first time that they had looked at an ERC mechanism to support education and educational research. Well, uh, when we saw this uh, particular notice, and it was uh, a little outside the regular uh, ERC mechanism, which is generally not specified as to, with regard to subject, uh, we uh, began to think about it a little bit. Uh, uh, Vanderbilt has a very strong college of education uh, called Peabody College. At one time, was an independent uh, institution and joined with uh, Vanderbilt in the 1980s. And uh, it was widely renowned for learning technology and learning science, uh, nationally ranked uh, faculty. Uh, and we had good connections there, and uh, I began to think about uh, whether we would like to try to do something. So I went over and talked with uh, James Pellegrino, who was the dean of Peabody at the time, and uh, talked over this idea with him, and he had some immediately, uh, immediately had some good suggestions about how we could go about it, and then I began to speak with other people on that faculty, in particular John Bransford, who's currently uh, at the University of Washington, heading a major uh, learning science center, but it was at Vanderbilt at that time. And so John and I began to talk about what might be done. And the idea was uh, originated that, that what we really wanted to do was take a look at modern learning science, uh, learning science being defined as, as all of the elements that go into uh, modern learning systems including psychology, cognitive psychology, uh, even some neurological considerations, plus uh, educational research. 
to take a look at the status of learning science and really to see if that body of knowledge uh, didn't have some new thing to say to engineering education because we're on the threshold of many challenges in engineering education and uh, uh, we wanted to take a look at, at whether the learning sciences could really influence engineering education. As we know, uh, many, uh, many uh, colleges and universities put major efforts into their educational plans and in engineering, but frequently it, it, it's not very highly informed by detailed knowledge from uh, learning science. And the other uh, element that we were interested in was learning technology. We wanted learning technologies, mainly computer technologies, to play a role in what we were doing. So the uh, hypothesis then began that uh, was formulated that we would try to synthesize learning science, learning technology, assessment and evaluation, uh, which is itself is a separate subject uh, in education and psychology, and uh, the domain areas of bioengineering, all of the subjects of bioengineering. And to do this, we formulated a team uh, from Vanderbilt and Peabody and uh, uh, discussed it with some of our colleagues around the country and the, the biomedical engineering faculty at Northwestern University at the University of Texas and the, and the Health Sciences and Technology Division of Harvard and MIT expressed an interest in working with us and we began to work to formulate a uh, plan to investigate how these ideas could improve uh, bioengineering education. So the hypothesis was that uh, that there were there were certain findings that uh, were uh, immediately extant and published in 1999 actually uh, that showed that ideal learning systems uh, should be uh, should have certain centeredness as it was called and these were uh, that they should be uh, student centered they should be knowledge centered they should be assessment centered and they should uh, have a learning community, support a learning community. And, uh, uh, and there were many examples from a book called How People Learn, edited by John Bransford, published by the Academy, National Academies Press, that talked about how mainly in K through 12, uh, these ideas had been applied to improve instruction. And so the question then became uh, exactly what would we mean by these uh, concepts as we tried to apply them to engineering education. Uh, it, it turns out that uh, the Peabody faculty had also investigated a way to organize instruction that was called the STAR Legacy Cycle, which was a technique for uh, building and designing instructional materials that were based on challenges that one presented the student and followed that up with asking students to, to try to um, provide solutions to those challenges and then go out and look at material, reference material, uh, the literature, uh, textbooks to see how what the state of knowledge was relative to that challenge and in this way try to integrate uh, knowledge uh, together uh, to uh, address a particular challenge. And so we, we began to look at a number of things, uh, uh, of ways to implement this in an engineering class, which had never been done before. And uh, we have to, had to ask ourselves the question, could you formulate reasonable challenges that would allow you to cover the material in a typical hardcore engineering class, such as mechanics or transport, uh, that would, uh, would cover the material you needed to cover, but at the same time would introduce some of these broadening ideas 
that would provide additional motivation to the student to accomplish, uh, to have a higher uh, level of accomplishment and, and come away with a greater level of knowledge. And that was really the hypothesis. Uh, there were many sub-hypotheses sub such as uh, what kinds of technologies should we use and what would they be, should they be aimed at and how can they improve uh, uh, education. And then we had to devise various methods for assessing and measuring the effectiveness of these techniques. And so we then immediately began to, uh, to choose certain areas of biomedical engineering from the biomedical engineering and bioengineering curricula of our institutions and invited uh, a faculty to be part of this study and they began to apply these techniques to the courses that they had historically taught and we began to redesign and develop these materials and, and then uh, apply the assessment methods to evaluate their effectiveness and that, that in a nutshell is the, the goal of this project. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful introduction to a, a very exciting project. The, uh, a number of uh, questions come to mind in terms of, uh, of uh, where you are with this and, and, and your ultimate expectations. But uh, let me begin with a question about the, uh, basically, when you train engineers, uh, you, you want a certain set of skills that uh, they're expected to be able to apply knowledge if you please but there's also a question of their their ability to apply these skills to a variety of problems I'm sure you've looked at this and I'm wondering how your new approaches uh, have uh, perhaps improved uh, those types of outcomes we think that the uh, the challenge-based approach can actually uh, uh, improve um, certain aspects of engineering education. Uh, if you were to break down the typical course as having objectives in which certain knowledge facts, uh, you'd like the student to have certain knowledge and facts that they would secondarily uh, attain some skills at uh, manipulation, perhaps mathematics or analysis. And finally, uh, you'd like for them to be able to transfer the knowledge that they learn from examples and problems in a particular area to the previously unknown, unstated, utterly new problems. So to test their, to test their ability to transfer, uh, we thought uh, should receive a high uh, priority. Uh, generally, uh, the first two of those we do a reasonably good job of in our current educational approaches in engineering. And in fact, we've conducted research uh, at uh, Vanderbilt and at the University of Texas that, that have really examined that issue and we find that uh, the first two are about the same from a control uh, class uh, as they are from a class that's been informed by these new approaches. However, it's the third that the new approach uh, seems to give an additional uh, impetus to and that, that students gain additional skills in being able to transfer their knowledge to the new problem and we think that the challenge base uh, approach to uh, to educational design is what allows this to happen because uh, students are trained to, to think uh, about things that they hadn't haven't seen before in more detail in a challenge-based course than they would in an ordinary course. Uh, so um, 
it, it, it's, it's that level where we're trying to make a difference, and we think that that really is related to uh, innovation, and uh, the term that we like to use is, is adaptive expertise, that we want our students to be experts, which would be the more traditional view that they had certain knowledge and certain skills, but then we want them to be also adaptive experts, which allows them to solve the previously unexperienced problem. It turns out that if you really examine uh, uh, much of what we do in our classroom and the kinds of assessments that we have, there's a tendency, even in engineering, which is more analytical than some other uh, education, um, there's a tendency to revert to patterns in which students are looking for the solution pattern to a problem that's stated fairly in a fairly complicated manner, but they're trying to essentially do pattern recognition between between a question and an answer. And uh, while there's some value in that, and it's very important to have a knowledge of those patterns, what you really want to do is to develop the skill to approach uh, a brand new problem for which there is no pre-existing pattern and to try to understand how to transfer uh, what you learn by looking at previous patterns to this new problem. And, and that's where the, these, this redesign seems to have its, its biggest impact. It seems to me that the essence of engineering education is to provide a set of skills that, uh, that the student then engineer can adapt to unknown problems at the time of the education. And Perhaps the closest we get to that in terms of the formal education is the capstone design project in the senior year. Right. But uh, in, if, in fact, the capstone design project is to design an artificial heart for a bioengineer, that bioengineer may, in the, his or her career in the future, uh, never see an artificial heart and want to apply those basic core competencies to some other diverse problem. So in, in, in educational... Uh uh, psychology and in educational research that the ability to do this is called transfer. And uh, uh, how to develop that to a higher degree in our students was part of the question that we were trying to address. Capstone design, we do think, uh, does play that exact role as a, as a commentary and almost a, a final exam for the entire curriculum, or it should. It's easy to say that, but it's difficult to, to find the projects that can actually do that and to supervise the students through them. By introducing more of that kind of thinking in the teaching of everything in the curriculum, you actually potentiate the effectiveness of that last course, I think. A lot of times we've been too content to, to concentrate heavily early on on knowledge and techniques and then only at the last try to cover this ability to transfer by having a design course. And a lot of times we just don't ever quite make it. So if you can, if you can uh, diffuse the ability to, to solve transfer problems down into the curriculum, then you're going to, be much, you're going to have a much more effective design course. And then we tried to look at ways uh, in the design course uh, as to how you could give people practice uh, with this process, uh, and it's not easy to do, um, without doing multiple design projects, which are very difficult. 
one technique that we had on that is to come up with what we call design scenarios in which people looked at design cases from the past. So some case-based study uh, of previous uh, uh, problems uh, has been uh, some effect where the concentration really is on, on the process of transfer that took place in that particular solution. And then, of course, to, to begin working on your own problem. Uh, getting this taught in, uh, in the context of today's demands on engineering faculty, biomedical engineering faculty in particular, is, is not very easy because of the diversity of things that students might be interested in the diversity of the field, having a, a, a single faculty member that would be conversant with everything that somebody might do is, 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 a, is a challenge. But uh, with collaboration, by having faculty preceptors and having someone who's knowledgeable that could supervise the whole process, you can, you can begin to be very effective in this. I've heard you uh, speak about uh, training engineers to be innovative. and. Uh, and we've just now been talking about the uh, having engineers be adaptive to problems. Is there a difference between innovation and being adaptive? Well, uh, what uh, the way our learning scientists have have defined that is that they've thought about it in a two-dimensional form, in which you would think about innovation on a, on one axis, the y-axis, let's say, and uh, efficiency on the x-axis so that efficiency really is hardcore expertise about how to solve a particular kind of problem. Innovation is just thinking freshly about all problems and uh, by designing instruction that sort of went along the 45 degree between those two is where they have hypothesized that really provides the adaptive expert. From the point of view of an engineer, if you went, uh, if you were just innovative, it wouldn't be enough because you've got to innovate things that are really going to work. <laughs> and the way to do that is to uh, is to examine their efficiency and to and to mobilize the knowledge we have about how things work uh, and what devices have worked in the past, what systems and processes have worked in the past to to mobilize that and to subject. The innovative idea to a rigorous examination and then go back and try again. So you can't just concentration, concentrate on innovation. Uh, you've got to have the element of efficiency in there. So trying to combine those uh, would be the ideal. Now, exactly how to do that and implement it at every level, or even how to assess it, has been part of the, uh, some of the issues that we've been looking at. Very good. It seems to me that... Uh Almost all engineering projects are, are team-based these days with a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, I presume that in terms of your studies that you've looked at this business of uh, having people work together to solve problems as opposed to doing it as, you know, on their own? Uh, certain uh, um, aspects of... Uh, our instruction have focused on teams, in particular the design project. Uh, a the part of, we, we use the shorthand HPL framework to describe our approach to instruction. So HPL is coming from the How People Learn book. So if a classroom has a is being constructed along HPL 
principals. There'll be a lot more interaction between the faculty and students and among students than in an ordinary classroom. And uh, this is done by uh, posing questions, by using some technologies that allow people to respond uh, where, and then immediately flashing up the response from the entire class. It's called a personal response system, in which one has a, a little clicker that you, you choose an answer. So we might pose a multiple choice question to the class and see what the class thinks. And then uh, if it's the right answer, you can move on to other things. But if it's not, then you, you can really sit down and start thinking about that and pose questions back to them. And they could talk to their neighbors. So there are a whole set of interactive uh, uh, methods that we think are valuable. And we judge an HPL classroom by the, the number of those things that are occurring relative to the amount of lecture that's occurring. Not to, and, and we think lecture certainly has a role. Uh, we have tended to, to try to uh, examine a case where a lot of the lectures that we think are necessary and should be given uh, can be actually placed in a, uh, on a website. And then students can go through those and look at PowerPoint slides and get that lecture, including some demonstrations perhaps or even simulations and then be ready to talk about that when they come back to class. So one of the ideas is to shift some of the lecture time out of the classroom and into homework and then use the classroom as a place where interaction is maximized. To some extent, uh, we think that that, that that utilizes the faculty better than they would otherwise be utilized because the faculty, our faculty, and the faculty here uh, are really pretty good at uh, uh, discussing the issues that they're trying to teach. Um, so if they're not spending all their time giving a set-piece lecture, then they're in a position to have that discussion at a higher level. Now, the problem is in a large class, uh, how do you do that? And that's where technology like the personal response system has been valuable to us. So it seems that the, the outcomes from a quantitative perspective are very positive from what you're doing. Uh, I presume that the student feedback is positive as well? Well, we've done that. We've studied that. And in fact, uh, uh, for most instructors, uh, uh, an HPL-based course has a higher student uh, rating response than a non-HPL course for the same instructor. And we have a lot of data on that for some instructors that have taught the same course for years, got interested in this, made changes, and their, their ratings went up. They don't automatically go through the ceiling. Some of the things that we're asking students to do that they can be uncomfortable with uh, because they've never had to do it before. So uh, there are a lot of anecdotes uh, around about that. Uh, uh, one, not in engineering, but uh, one of our learning science colleagues uh, got the reply on the student evaluation one time that, that uh, this fellow didn't teach me anything. I had to learn it all myself. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, he was, he was delighted to get that, but the student was very mad about that. Uh, and so you do run into that sometimes. And... Uh, and uh, early on, people are very uncomfortable with this notion of uh, formulating ideas, having to formulate an idea about some challenge when uh, they haven't taken the course yet. And of course, it's the whole point 
of this, uh, this instructional method is to make people think using their existing knowledge base about a problem they've never seen before uh, as to how they would approach it. And a lot of our students are not accustomed to that. They're, they really would like, you know, they want to hear the answer and then parrot it back. And even, even engineering students uh, are looking for that pattern. Uh, and, and it's not too surprising since much of their education up to that point has been along this line. Yeah, very, very interesting. It's, uh, it's, it seems like a very exciting and dynamic program that you have. And uh, I might ask if, uh, if we were to have this discussion in two years from now, what... Uh, might you be sharing with us that uh, isn't in the in the classroom today? What, what's your what's your vision as to where this is going to take you? Well, we would hope uh, that if this uh, becomes disseminated, and we're currently doing a number of things like holding workshops and publications, we're we're just now going to uh, get to the point where we can publish uh, a final analysis, quantitative analysis of what these methods have done in a large number of classrooms with a great variety of students. Uh, we're hoping that, uh, and our preliminary results show that it's been quite effective, uh, we're hoping that that's going to have an influence on, on the way people think about their education. I think if one were to adopt this uh, throughout a curriculum, there are many things that you could do to, to improve uh, a particular curriculum. And uh, we would hope that that would happen. Now, uh, our this is the last year for our our grant. We're looking for uh, uh, money to keep doing some research. Uh, the people that have been involved in this, uh, many of them have uh, developed careers in this area and are uh, looking for research funds and are being funded to continue this. And we would hope that it would continue and move out of bioengineering into other fields of engineering and science uh, too. And uh, so that's part of our dissemination is, is to see that happen. And then of course to to see the original ideas improve uh, as time goes on. We appreciate your remarks. Are there some other uh, points you'd like to uh, share before we wrap this up? I think uh, uh, that it was wise of the National Science Foundation to focus bioengineering, uh, to focus this effort on bioengineering. Uh, bioengineering does have some special challenges of trying to integrate biology, uh, medicine, and engineering. And so we, we need to have the most efficient uh, method of instruction possible in order to really cover those things in a, in a reasonable amount of time and to be able to, to bring students through such a curriculum uh, uh, with the maximum amount of uh, adaptive expertise that we can. So uh, some of the problems about bioengineering, I think, uh, about teaching bioengineering are going to be, uh, uh, can be addressed through this approach. Very good. Uh, Dr. Harris, we certainly appreciate you uh, taking the time to share with us your exciting results and, and your vision. Uh, to our listeners, uh, we will put on the uh, Regenerative Medicine Podcast website uh, links to uh, Dr. Harris's personal webpage and also to his uh, Engineering Research Center uh, for you, you to further explore uh, what's happening in this area. Uh, also, to our listeners, I would say uh, we uh, look forward to you joining us again in two weeks for another interesting interview with uh, one of the leaders in these exciting fields. Uh, thank you, and uh, best wishes till we join you again. Thank you.